Hello and welcome to the Interim Champion Boxing Podcast with Raskin and Mulvaney, with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kira Mulvaney. Eric, it is time. I promised you all last week that we would have an official kitten name announcement this week. So, once again, uniquely among boxing podcasts, here it is. Okay, are I'm you ready. ready? I am. Are I, you ready? I was born ready. Really? Ready specifically to learn the names of my kittens? <laughs> that is what I was born ready for, yes. Wow, that's remarkably <laughs> sort of advanced planning for you. But there you go. All right. So, kitten number one is Lucy, just because she seems like a Lucy. Um, For a while, <laughs> Sarah Jean wanted to call her Darcy, which I believe is a Hebrew name. Um, hmm, uh, I Darcy. didn't quite. No, yeah, no, D-A-S-S-Y. Okay. Um, I, meant, I meant to run it by you, actually, to see if you'd heard, heard of it. Um. Uh, it just wasn't quite fitting for me and it felt like you know it was a name we were trying to give a kitten rather than it being a kitten's obvious name and so I being a five-year-old child responded with wanting to call her pterodactyl so (laughs) (laughs) that's actually pretty great (laughs) so so, like we would try it like she'd be like hi Darcy and I'd be like pterodactyl pterodactyl Uh, (laughs) which, which would eventually get shortened to Terry well, Dactyl, actually. So her, her oh, full okay. official name, her full official name, purely for use among the two of us. And cat owners will understand this. Non-cat owners will, will consider it further evidence that cat owners are just bizarre. But mm-hmm. cat owners will understand that a cat can't just have one name. It has to have multiple variations sure. thereof. And so her full name is Lucille Darcy Dactyl. Um, also, I should point out, we don't get out much, uh, in case you're wondering. So, <laughs> right. so one is Lucy. And the other one who has slightly exotic looking markings, she's really strikingly uh, beautiful little kitten. Um, we call her Natalia. And that stuck pretty early on because she felt like a Natalia. She's a tiny bit more standoffish than the other one. Not much, but a tiny little bit. There is a wee air of mystery about her. And her full name is Natalia Boa Vista for no other reason than that's a character on CSI Miami, which is a uh, guilty pleasure of ours because we love to watch the David Caruso acting masterclass in uh, in every episode. So there you go, Lucy hmm. and Natalia. All right. I, I like those names. I like the explanations behind them as well. I do kind of like Pterodactyl more than I like either <laughs> of those. Because you but, were a five-year-old boy. Right, exactly. I I continued to mature from birth through five, and then I stopped. <laughs> um, no, but those those are good. I approve. Not that you needed my approval, but 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 that's it, huh? You're you're, you're locked in on those. There's no sense in, in me them. making any further suggestions for names, huh? Is that what you're trying to tell I, me? I feel a strong urge on your part to make further suggestions for names. Well, no, it's just that you know uh, our 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 intern in your back pocket. Oh yes, right. yeah, yeah. Our intern Owen Lewis is is going to be heartbroken because. I told him I was pretty sure you were going to name them Owen and Lewis, but um, but fine. Sorry, Owen. I tried. Blame Kieran. Um, and 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 then you know it occurred to me that Full and Toolbox would be great cat names, <laughs> but okay, too late, I guess. Uh, oh, oh, very oh. and Feel, also a no go. Oh, yeah, yeah. Perhaps mm. last last one here. Perhaps Usyk and Walrus Penis. <laughs> I could understand Sarah Jean objecting to that combo. I suppose. Yeah, it would cut down very well if if I was still in Alaska. People would be like, oh, yeah, that's pretty funny. But yeah, yeah. (laughs) All right. So Lucy and Natalia it is, but in my mind, it's pterodactyl and walrus penis. I think that's perfectly fine. 
Okay, I think that's good. perfectly fine. And yeah, there'll be all kinds of different variations of names added between now and then. I, we went through the whole like list of Alfie names one time, I think. Really. Right. Yes. Everything from Alpha Romeo to <laughs> Alfie Sprouts to yeah. So yeah, yeah. This is the, these are their starter names, and, and the rest will be added over the low these many years that await us. So. Okay. Good. All right. Uh, we actually do have. Uh, for people who are new to this and are wondering why this boxing podcast is just devoted <laughs> several minutes to talking about kitten names, we do actually have boxing to talk about. Uh, on this episode, we will open up the mailbag. We will preview next weekend's welterweight clash between Natasha Jonas and Michaela Mayer. Look at the news. Uh, we'll review a new uh, betting competition that we're going to have between us. And we'll go over the results of our poll from last week's snake draft. But first, it's time to fire up the recap machine as on Saturday in Quebec City, Artur Bedeviev retained his unbeaten 100% knockout professional record as he straight up beat up Liverpool's Callum Smith to force a seventh round stoppage and defend his light heavyweight belt. Eric, walk us through the fight. How did Bedeviev emerge as such a comfortable winner? Yeah, I'm not sure if you watched any of the NFL playoff games on Saturday, Kieran, but it was a day of drama-free blowouts. Uh, Texans 45, Browns 14, Chiefs 26, Dolphins 7. And the score was pretty similar here. Uh, this this yeah. was all better BF all the way, even though Smith was game and, and the judges actually each all gave him at least one round. But better BF used his patented brand of skillful aggression from the opening seconds of the fight. Really, it was unloading and making Smith cover up for the first time, literally about five seconds in and just continued to take control bit by bit, round by round. There was a right uppercut to the throat that seemed to hurt Smith in the third. He nearly went down under an assault in the fourth. His nose was bloodied in the fifth. Finally, in round seven, better be broke through and became the first man ever to knock Smith down. Right hand over top of the Smith jab was the punch that started it. Smith got up but was in bad shape. Better be I've dropped him again. Trainer Buddy McGirt climbed into the ring and eventually ref Michael Griffin noticed him and uh, the fight was stopped at two minutes even of the seventh round. As you said, better be I've remained perfect. 20 fights, 20 wins, 20 knockouts after exactly 20 minutes of work. Uh, and uh, Smith fell to 29 and two. So yeah, how how did better be have win this fight and, and win it rather easily? Uh, and, and how did he do what Canelo couldn't and drop and stop Smith? Um, I guess I have two ways of breaking it down. The first is just the the technical analysis of what makes better be have so great. The, the attributes that land him on my pound for pound list. I mean, he's obviously a massive puncher. You don't get to 20, you know, with 20 KOs if you don't have heavy hands. But what stood out to me for the 20 minutes this fight lasted is how clever and well-schooled he is. There's no wasted motion. He lands with stunning accuracy, especially with his jab. For a lot of fighters, landing, what, like 15% or so of your jabs is, is pretty good. I was actually surprised seeing the CompuBox stats afterwards that Berbiev's total connect rate wasn't even higher than what they had it at. He was at 38.6%, according to CompuBox, 182 of 471 it felt like he was landing at a 50% clip, uh, but the jab numbers, 95 of 247, 38.5%, basically the same percent as his power punches. That's remarkable. Um, like I said, no wasted motion. Everything is set up perfectly. He's also subtly effective defensively, picking off almost every punch, almost nothing to the head gets through cleanly. And Smith just had no answer. And 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 that's the second part of why better be have won and won convincingly. You know, 
sometimes you talk yourself into a clearly inferior fighter having a chance. Um, I did it with Charlo against Canelo, for example. Um, I didn't pick Charlo to win, but I, I pretzel twisted my mind until I was thinking the styles could be just right for Charlo. And I was tempted to pick him, yada, yada. And then he gets absolutely whitewashed. A lot of people on the interwebs did that with Callum Smith for this fight. Um, proud to say that I was not one of them. Short of better be of showing up suddenly extremely diminished due to his age, I gave Smith no chance of even being competitive here. Um, I even bet better be of as a minus 430 favorite, which, you know, it's no fun making those bets. But to me, there was just obvious value there. I figured he was at least a solid 85% certain to win. It just... You know, I, I hate to simplify it down to there's levels to this game, but there are. Uh, Better Biev is an A-plus light heavyweight, and Smith is an A-minus light heavyweight. And if they fought 100 times, Better Biev wins 100 times. So those are my thoughts. What 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 did you think? What what do you have to add, Kieran? Um, yeah, and I think, the, I think the key point, first of all, I'll say... Um... I actually did go all the way and pick Charlo over Canelo, I think, and that's what cost me an RP. Oh, right. <laughs> we forgot about that. Yes. So, so uh, there you go. Um, I think the key point here is what you talked about. I was not one of those either. Who I, I was a bit surprised. I think maybe a lot of it was coming from the UK where people really thought sure. this, you know, there was, a, there was a good chance for Callum Smith here. Um, I saw somebody reference Lloyd Hunnigan, Donald Curry vibes, and I just never, ever had that. And that's, I mean, I, I suggested about a TKO8 when we talked about it last week or right. before. Um, I was, I expected a little bit more from Callum Smith. I thought he might be a bit more, you know, competitive in the early rounds. But again, that's easy for me to say. I wasn't the one getting hit by Arda Bedebiev. Um When Callum Smith, who had such a substantial height and reach over Bedebiev, almost immediately started losing the battle of the jabs. Mm. That was it. Um, that was when we talked about it, when we previewed it. So that was what Callum Smith had to do. That was his only hope. Keep him at distance, tie him up close. And he couldn't do either. And you're, I think you're exactly correct. But first of all, that's partly because there are levels. And in the light heavyweight division right now, there's one super level. And then there's everybody else. Um, and that super level contains just two fighters. Yeah. Um, you know, and... I think I think you really nailed it when you when you said that yeah we focus on better BF's power and it's a lot like Golovkin right in that people would focus on Golovkin's power but the key to why he was so successful because you would rarely see Golovkin just absolutely torque up into a punch the way that say right. Tommy Hearns would and it's the same with better BF the reason part of the reason why their their punches are so effective yes they have what we call heavy hands some some fighters just seem to be able to touch you and, and hurt you Costa Zoo was another one who was like that. But he puts himself in the right position. His footwork is beautiful. I mean, just beautiful. It's so subtle, you don't even mm -hmm. notice it. But, and Golovkin, again, was the same. Just doesn't give his opponents the room to maneuver, even a little bit, to maneuver out of the way. He's able to maneuver them, maneuver them in such a way that they don't only get hit, they get hit with the full force and the full accuracy um, of, of the punch he's throwing. And you mentioned it, that early on, better be of hurt Callum, Callum I, in the... In, almost the first round i think it was and once that happens you might he might have gone in with a pretty good game plan callum smith and once he got hurt with one his that first right hand that maybe didn't look like it was all of that you can suddenly your plans can go out the window and while you're trying to figure out what's going on the other guy's just keeping at you and and that's the thing is the better be of hits hard but he's technically excellent 
I mean, he's a very, very good technical boxer as well. So you put those two together. And again, it's like we said with David Benavides. Benavides is a is an odd looking kind of fighter. He doesn't, he's not a classically good fighter. But again, one of the strengths that he has is cutting off the ring and the way that he works and the way that he does that. Um, and, and that's really what Better BF brings to it. He's a very, very solid, all round, very, very good fighter. And Callum Smith is just a, a very good fighter who isn't at the level of a Canelo Alvarez or or of an art of better BF. There is no shame in that whatsoever. Right. But better BF just showed why he was so superior on Saturday night. Yeah. I was, okay, so you, you talked about that super level and the two fighters on it. We know who you're talking about. It's better BF and Bivol. We've seen them both yep. in action over the last few weeks. A meeting for the Undisputed Light Heavyweight Championship is reportedly in the works. They both appear to want it. Seems a strong chance it happens next. Uh, Bob Arum specifically talking about uh, doing it in Riyadh over the summer. So if it happens this summer, who you got, Kieran? Who wins this fight? Bearing in mind that there's recency bias involved in this, and we always like to call ourselves out <laughs> about that, it's very difficult for me to see anybody getting past Better BF. On paper, and this again comes down to the whole thing about Better BF not just being a puncher, but being a really good boxer. I mean, because we talked about Better BF Bivol and as if it's like a boxer versus puncher matchup, but to some extent it is. But Bivol's not your classic boxer. He's not your super elusive guy. He's somebody who likes to sit kind of just half in, half out of the pocket and fire away in front of you. Um, you know, he he's not a Demetrius Andrade type of boxer. Uh, he's a power boxer, I guess you'd call him. Boxer puncher to some extent. Um, and Better BF is more than just a slugger. He's somebody who's very good at, you know, getting, as we said, getting his opponent in just the right place. And and so you kind of wonder whether that it's a it could be just a styles make fights kind of thing. And it might not be as good of a style matchup for Dimitri Bivol as one might think, um, in that he does have that preference to sort of somewhat stay in the pocket. But the big difference is Better BF is going to have a much greater ability to land hurtful, meaningful punches on Bivol than Bivol is on Better BF. We've, we've talked about it. We've seen how it's been a while since Bivol scored a knockout. Um, he came somewhat close in his last fight, but wasn't able to pull it out. Uh, it, right. I think it's a fantastic fight. I desperately mm-hmm. want to see it. I might change my mind several times between now and then. But right now, it, I just feel like Better BF has that little extra something. And there's always seems to be a bit of a diffidence to the way that Bivol fights. And you certainly don't get that with Better BF. Better BF looks like he wants to go in there and gradually beat you up and take you apart uh, and hurt you. Whereas you don't get that from Bivol. And I, I think that that might prove to be the difference. So at the moment, I would very much go for Arda Better BF. But uh, do, you, do you have an early pick? Yeah, and it should surprise none of our listeners to know that uh, a lot of your thoughts are my thoughts at this point. Um, You know, usually all things being in the vicinity of equal, I pick the boxer over the puncher. But but in this case, the puncher is a damn good boxer himself. So so I have to go the other way and go with the puncher. Don't get me wrong. It's close to a 50 50. Um, I actually checked to see if any sports books were listing early odds, even though the fight hasn't been made yet. And because sometimes they do. And yeah, I saw one that had it dead even minus 110 each way. But yeah, I personally am finding myself making better be of a small favorite. I'm sure Bivol will win rounds. I'm sure there will be times mm-hmm. in the fight where he controls the distance and he looks to be outboxing Better Biev, but Better Biev will also outbox and outmaneuver him in spots. And when Better Biev lands, 
his punches will do damage. Whereas I'm not convinced Bivol's punches will bother better BF much. Like you said, I, you know, it's, it's possible I'm being overly influenced by what I just watched, but I don't think so. I, I, I think this is a case where, you know, I, I'm not even sure that Bivol has the superior skills, but if he does, mm. if he does have the superior skills, it's not by a big enough margin. I don't think to make up for the difference in ability to mete out punishment. Um, yeah. And by the way, one, one more thing before we move on, just going back to better BF versus Smith, we need a better system for trainers getting refs attention when they want to yeah. stop a fight. Not that it mattered. Uh, I didn't take any extra punches or anything, but just buddy climbing into the ring and he has a guy from the commission with him and they're waving their arms. And I just found it very awkward how it took so long for Griffin to see them and realize they were trying to stop the fight. There are lights on the ring posts, right? Like, can we adopt a system where the corner tells the timekeeper I'm stopping it. Mm. And the timekeeper hits the lights and the ref sees them flashing something like that. I don't know, but just seeing buddy McGirt climbing up to the ring to stop a fight, of course, reminds me of my favorite little detail from Gaddy ward one that only the people who were in the building that night. know. Uh, I think you've, you've probably heard me mention this before Kieran, but uh, for anyone who yeah. isn't aware, uh, buddy McGirt was ready to stop that fight in round nine as, as ward was beating on Gaddy in the, in the final minute of the ninth round. Buddy climbed the steps, towel in hand, and tried for a second to get the ref's attention, but the ref, uh, Frank Cappuccino, was facing the other way. And then Gaddy started punching back and put on a little rally in the in that insane round. And and Buddy, you know, retreated back down the steps, unseen by the ref and unseen by HBO's cameras. I have never seen any video evidence to prove that this mm. happened, but uh, I don't think it's my mind playing tricks on me. I'm pretty sure I witnessed it. He was ready to stop the fight and just couldn't get Cappuccino's attention. Yeah. Well, it was a rough night for Liverpool in Quebec on Saturday night. Uh, mm -hmm. And in Liverpool, England next week, Natasha Jonas, who recently dropped down to £147 to add a welterweight belt to her unified junior middleweight titles, defends that new bobble against Michaela Mayer. Uh, Jonas is 14-2-1 with nine KOs. And she's on a, a really a pretty good run. Uh, a 20-21 points defeat and a challenge for Katie Taylor's lightweight crown left her 9-2-1. With two fights later, she'd moved all the way up to £154, taken a belt there then she added more belts in her next two outings and then claiming the welterweight belt she defends on saturday mayor is 19 and one with five ko's uh, she's won two straight since losing her 130 pound titles to alicia baumgardner um eric mayor is the one with the prestige and track record that lone defeat should probably be completely reassessed in the light of baumgardner's subsequent ped controversies but jonah seems to be full of confidence and fulfilling her potential so who do you like in this matchup yeah, I mean, not only are there questions about Baumgartner and PEDs, but also the decision in that fight was questionable in the moment, really could have gone either way. This, too, feels like a fight that could go either way. Uh, again, I looked up the odds. Jonas is a slight favorite. She's like minus 150, Mayer plus 135. That's close to a coin flip. And I see why. I have trouble picking a winner here, although I think I lean Mayer. Um, and especially betting-wise, I would sooner go with Mayer at plus money. One thing about this fight, Size, I don't think, is a big issue here. You know, when Jonas grabbed those super welterweight belts, she did so weighing 149 and a quarter. Really, she's a welterweight, and, and she made lightweight two years ago. So, yes, Mayer's moving up, but I'm going to guess they'll look like they belong in the same weight class, roughly, when they're in the ring together. So, size, not a big factor to me. Age, that could prove a factor. Mayer's 33, Jonas is 39. Uh, 
you know, she turned pro in, in her 30s. But but Jonas certainly hasn't been showing any signs of aging lately. And it was just a few fights ago that she performed tremendously against Katie Taylor. Um, it was a close fight. Gives you a sense of what a quality matchup Jonas Mayer is. It's someone who barely lost to Katie Taylor against someone whose only loss was a coin flip decision to a possibly enhanced Baumgartner. These are fairly elite women's fighters. They're not the very, very best. Uh, Jonas has called out Claressa Shields. That seems a horrible idea for her. I hope for her sake that doesn't happen. Um, but uh, but these two are evenly matched. Jonas is a southpaw. And uh, I'm not sure, uh, but based on quick and possibly incomplete research, I don't see any evidence that Mayer has ever fought a southpaw as a pro. So that could be a factor, although Jonas isn't some like total slickster who puts the southpaw stance to maximum use. Anyway, I've, I've droned on enough. I think I'm picking Mayer. She's younger. I think she's hungrier. Although uh, you are our, our resident Liverpool expert, Kieran. Can Mayer get a fair <laughs> shake in Liverpool? If so, I'm inclined to pick her by decision. But that's a big question for me. Well, yeah. I mean, I think it depends, obviously. Um, if it's a close fight, then obviously the, you know, you're going to favor Natasha Jonas getting the uh, getting the benefit of the doubt. Uh, right. And I think it is going to be a close fight. It is. I'm very much with you in the gun to my head. I probably pick Mayer. Um, but Jonas has been on such a good run and she's continued to impress. It's almost like she's looked better with 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 every fight recently. And that sort of came out of nowhere. I, I thought her jumping all the way up from lightweight to 154 was just just a kind of a disaster, like a Hail Mary to try and save her career. It's all worked very well for her. Uh, it's it's a very, very tough fight to call. I don't... Yeah, I, I just have a hard time seeing one person really assert themselves right. very clearly here, particularly given that we're going to have two-minute rounds. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm really intrigued by this. And, and not long ago, I would not have been because I would have thought that Michaela Mayer was a fairly hefty favorite. Uh, Jonas has really kind of turned her career around and turned it up. Uh, this is an intriguing fight. I'm looking forward to it. Yep. All right. Let's look at the week's news. There are a few stories to look back on, uh, but I do think we've got one fairly clear main event among the supporting bouts. Errol Spence had surgery for uh, for cataracts in his eye, putting his contractually mandated rematch with conqueror Terence Crawford in further jeopardy. I don't think we're ever going to see that rematch, actually, and I think that's okay. Um Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. was arrested in Los Angeles on Monday for illegal possession of a pair of assault rifles uh, that were ghost guns. That's guns that don't have serial numbers, I believe, or show up on any government registries. And ownership of a ghost gun is considered a very serious offense in California. Uh, Sergei Kovalev and Jai Apatea may both be returning to action on the Usyk Fury heavyweight championship belt in Saudi Arabia, presently planned for February 17th. And Mike Carpenter of ESPN reports that Noya Inoue and Luis Neri have agreed to a May bout for Inoue's undisputed 122-pound championship. But I don't think there's too much doubt about the week's main event. Last week, we mentioned that referee Tony Weeks had stopped Virgil Ortiz's fight with Frederick Lawson far too soon, after just two minutes 33 of round one, in fact, with Ortiz clearly in control, but Lawson not obviously hurt. Uh, we said in last week's pod that following Weeks' bad stoppage in the Raleigh romero ismail Barroso contest last year, that maybe he... Like the recently retired Kenny Bayless was at the end of the road. But then he came out swinging, stating in a now deleted post on Facebook that, quote, what the public don't know uh, is that prior to the fight, they did a brain scan on him. That's on Lawson. And it came up that he had an aneurysm and they did a test again. And the same aneurysm came up. Another doctor was brought in and gave him the same examination and he tested negative for the aneurysm. So they cleared him to fight. 
In response, Golden Boy Promotions and the Nevada State Athletic Commission issued statements that fell some way short of being denials of Weeks claims while asserting that proper medical procedures were followed. Uh, my colleague at ProBox, uh, Alan Dawson, spoke to a source who told him that an MRI, an initial MRI was inconclusive, although there was no mention of an aneurysm, while a CAT scan two days later, quote, showed nothing wrong. Uh, look, there's a lot of issues to unpack here. Eric, why don't you go first? What do you make of this whole situation now? Yeah, there, there is a lot to say here. I, I guess I'll start with this. Tony Weeks doesn't seem the type of person to make up an accusation like that out of whole cloth. Um, yep. Now, he was under attack from all sides for the stoppage. Maybe it caused him to snap and lash out irrationally. But, but more likely than not, he wasn't just making this up about an aneurysm. Now, maybe he got some unconfirmed information and ran with it. Maybe not. My gut tells me there's there's some kernel of truth behind it. Um, and by the way, I saw one commenter saying, well, if Weeks felt this way, he should have refused to referee the fight. The counter argument would be that if he felt Lawson's health was in danger, he couldn't take the risk of someone else replacing him as the referee and not looking out for Lawson. All that said, I, I, I'm shocked Weeks went public with this. However, briefly, um, he had to know doing so could be the end of his refereeing career. Although, as we discussed last week, maybe it was going to be over no matter what, because everyone assumed he'd lost his grip on when to stop a fight. But look, if what Weeks posted on Facebook is true, this is one of the biggest scandals in modern boxing history. Uh, I, I, I don't think I'm being hyperbolic. This is this is a commission effectively going doctor shopping. Uh, he's saying the NSAC did a scan. They didn't like the result. So they kept testing and kept cycling through doctors until they got the result they wanted, which, you know, let's step back a second. It doesn't make sense to me that the commission would do that with Frederick Lawson, right? It, it, you know, if, if it's the eve of, say, Tank versus Ryan Garcia and a doctor says, I don't like what I'm seeing in, in Ryan Garcia, then you can understand the commission saying, eh, let's see what another doctor thinks. The, the show must go on here. This is a mega bucks pay-per-view main event. And I'm not saying that should be their attitude. I'm just saying there would be some logic to that response. There's there's not much logic to forcing Frederick Lawson through because Lawson isn't the selling point here. He's he's a prop in this fight. This is the Virgil Ortiz show. And if Lawson can't go, just find another available journeyman 154 pounder on short notice and throw him in unless it was truly too late for that. And, you know, I, I get them not wanting to postpone another fight for poor Virgil, but I don't know. Something smells fishy somewhat with the idea that they went doctor shopping for Frederick Lawson. But fishiest of all is that, as you indicated, the statements from the commission and Golden Boy didn't do a convincing job of, of denying Weeks's claims. Um, Golden Boy said Lawson was cleared by an NSAC sanctioned doctor. But, you know, the promoter had the opportunity in their statement to refute the claims about aneurysms and bad scans and other doctors and all that stuff. And they didn't. And the commission just said both fighters, quote, were cleared by medical experts to compete without restrictions. Also, no mention refuting any adverse findings, you know, could have said suggestions of problematic brain scans are false. But they didn't say that. that that's worrisome. So I can't help but fall on the side of concluding that there's more than likely some truth to what Weeks wrote if nobody is coming out and saying he's full of shit. Um, and, you know, it, 
my God, if, if the Nevada commission had a doctor tell them this guy is unfit to fight, his scan shows a brain aneurysm and they ignored it and called in a different doctor and had him fight anyway. I, I just, I can't think of a bigger scandal since like Panama Lewis. Um, if it's true uh, again, if, 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 if I'm not saying that I know what weeks said is true. I'm just saying that if it is, Head's got a role on the Nevada Commission. Like, I, I know we live in a world now where there often are no consequences for the worst and most immoral actions imaginable, but that that commission has to be gutted and rebuilt with all new people if it turns out Weeks was telling the truth. So I don't know. I could probably go on even further on this. It's it's a crazy story. Uh, I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll let you chime in, uh, Kieran, but uh, th- those are my thoughts uh you know a, a week out from the the tony weeks facebook post yeah and again again very similar you know it's interesting you bringing up the point that frederick lawson's not the guy you go to the map for to to make sure he can fight it reminded me of um prior to the miguel Cotto antonio margarito rematch when there were all these concerns about margarito's eye yeah and top rank had this very big public thing of Margarito's going to the New York Commission doctor now to see if he'll be checked out. Will he survive? Will he get the license? We all knew he was going to. We all knew that they they probably picked a doctor who was going to pass him. But that's the situation that you imagine something like this happening. Like you said, not with Frederick Lawson. There are there are opponents ready up and down California, Nevada, out there who can easily just get in a car or you know, not even have to hop on a flight to be there right. to be an opponent for Virgil Ortiz. So, so that that's the thing that that doesn't make sense. I agree with you one hundred percent. I had also seen uh, a few people go, "Well, Weeks shouldn't shouldn't have refereed the fight." And no, if if you're, I totally understand why. If Tony went into this feeling this was the issue, he perhaps felt more compelled to be the referee for the fight. Like, unless every referee refuses to ref it, creating this situation where. You know they don't have a third official and then there's a whole other deal and you can say maybe they all should have agreed to do that um then somebody's going to referee this fight and if you feel that you know the situation and you're going to be careful and cautious then you're the best person to be in the ring to protect the fighter i right. so so i understand that and that's super like that's super not the issue to fix on here like right. that's so 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 minor relatively speaking um I, gosh, I, I just, I just have a hard time picturing Golden Boy and the Nevada Commission doing that, yeah. particularly in this instance. It's them terrible responses to it that have made me think that maybe, like you, that there's something to this. Now, maybe they're being very generic in their responses because there are medical privacy laws and mm-hmm. they don't want to, you know, and, and they realize that there might be some kind of legal thing down the road and maybe everything wasn't perfect and maybe they did have to go to at least a second doctor. I don't know. It's And also there's the issue of why does a referee know all about the failed or, or successful medical checks that a fighter has gone through before he gets in? How, how does a referee sort of have access to that information? If you're around fights a lot, you know that... Um, having access to purported inside information is like the ultimate currency. It's it's during fight weeks, all anybody ever does is swap gossip with each other. Eight times out of 10, maybe eight and a half times out of 10, that gossip is imperfectly accurate at best. Right. Um, and that doesn't stop people spreading it around. 
Occam's razor suggests to me that Tony Weeks 100% believes what he said, that he was given that info, but that info was a distorted account of what had actually happened. And that would be my sense of what probably has happened here. But I... I would not be surprised if Frederick Lawson finds himself uh, uh, an attorney here to, if, if there's anything here to kind of look, look into this. Um, I don't know. Uh, it, it isn't something that we should just let drop largely because of the responses of, of Nevada and Golden Boy. And Golden Boy's particularly was, yeah, everything was fine. You've got to talk to Nevada, not us. Right. Um, that was an absolute, don't come here gov um and you know if we make a plea deal then i'll totally help totally uh sell them up the river so those those responses were what made me particularly concerned uh i have no idea how this is going to end up either way it's probably not good for tony because right. yeah like you said going public like this it's the, he can't get a, a big fight now and Nevada might not want him to. I might say, look, right. you've violated confidentiality. You're done. Um, I don't know where this ends up. And I think it sort of behooves all of us involved in boxing to not let it just disappear. Cause there might be nothing here. There might be something. Yeah. You, well, your, your Occam's razor point lines up with Alan Dawson's reporting on it. Basically that like, there's something there and uh, in something was inconclusive and that maybe something got lost in translation as someone tried to share that information with Tony Weeks. That would be like sort of a logical explanation that it's not as bad as what Tony Weeks posted on Facebook, but that he was acting in what he thought was Lawson's best interest based on information he had. Like that kind of adds up as a possibility, but but we, we really don't know. But I, I had the same thought about that that Tony is just like, you know, he's he, he's never going to referee another boxing match in, in Nevada, uh, uh, you know, because if, if you don't believe him, then then, you know, just based on his stoppages in recent fights, he's not fit to ref. And if you do believe him, then he certainly won't referee again in Nevada as long as the current commissioners are there, whether another state. I, I don't know. It, it seems like he's, he was kind of screwed no matter what here um, and just. Yeah, what a bizarre situation. What what a long way this story went from two weeks ago. Yes. <laughs> the the story was, hey, I hope Virgil Ortiz makes it into the ring for a fight yeah. finally. And then and now Virgil Ortiz is like not not like he's like eight eight cast members down the the, the list for the for, for this story that's developed. Yeah, incredible. Um all right, there were a few other, as I mentioned, a few other news items. If you can even remember what they were. <laughs> Anything else you want to talk about? Uh, yeah, not a lot to say about any of the other items, but, you know, I, I wish Errol Spence the best and the full recovery. But at the same time, and you kind of teased this when you mentioned the item, I, I hope this opens the door for Crawford to just go fight someone else. You know, that wasn't a fight that warranted an immediate rematch. And the clock's ticking on Crawford. He, he's got to get another fight signed before all the momentum is gone. You know, I guess the clock is ticking on a lot of PBC fighters who are waiting for dates and networks, yeah. actually. But but Crawford especially I hope this means he can fight someone else in the spring rather than waiting for Spence. Um, and and the only other thing is I'll, I'll note uh, about Opataya uh, being on the Fury Usyk undercard that that I read that Opataya is a Fury sparring partner. He's in there playing the part of Usyk as best he can, and that makes a lot of sense. Same height, both southpaws. Good bit of casting there by Team Fury. Mm, yes, indeed. Uh, yeah, uh, I don't really have much to add to any of that. Um... 
the Chavez Jr. story is becoming increasingly sad, really. Yeah. I think yeah. that um, ever since that HBO um, 24-7 caught him walking around in his tidy whities eating cereal at 4 p.m., he's been a little bit, his, his whole notion of, of dedication and his approach to life has been a little bit of the butt of jokes. And, you know, then he got got robbed by uh, by those three hookers after one fight with was right. it after he lost to canelo and i think that's just, right yeah it's just all been it's all a little kind of it's not amusing no but there's, there's he's there's there's trouble there and um uh hopefully he gets some kind of attention here because yeah i don't know where that's going to end up um but uh also the other thing was the idea of a in a way nary fight absolutely sign me up uh look no one's getting close to Noya in a way right. until he moves up to junior middleweight um <laughs> but uh but hell if anyone's gonna try and give him a crack it's gonna be Luis Neri so uh yeah it's definitely sign me up for that one all righty uh we have a couple of quick interim podcast announcements uh first of all thanks to everyone who voted in our poll about which of our two four fight cars we selected in last week's snake draft you would most like to see the overwhelming winner not at all influenced by the blog post that i wrote uh that uh, included the poll was my card which won with 72 percent of the vote as opposed to eric's 28 percent. eric uh, any thoughts on your humiliating rejection by our listeners you just couldn't help yourself huh karen you couldn't no. conduct an authentic experiment without tampering no. should have been a simple <laughs> task really you know you, you mm. put up a post where you list what's on your card you list what's on my card, and you let people vote for one or the other. Easy enough. Nothing to it. But no, you run a photo of Canelo Alvarez at the top of the post, subliminally planting one of your main event fighters in the brains of voters. And then you use subjective language. Uh, I know meant to be tongue in cheek, but still about your awesome card and my stupid card or whatever it was you said. And again, you're ruining the control in the experiment. Here's the thing. I like your card. I like it a lot. It may be the superior card. It may have won on its own merits. But now we'll never know. Kieran screwed Kieran to adopt a Vince McMahonism. You know what it reminds me of? The last Super Bowl. Maybe the Kansas City Chiefs are going to win it fair and square. But we'll never know. A ref got involved, figured, why let the teams decide the game? I want to decide it. And that's what you did, Kieran. Why let there be a legitimate vote that tells us which card the people like better when I could tell them what to vote for? I want to decide it. Well, Kieran screwed Kieran. We'll never know who drafted the better dream card. It has been ruled a no contest. I hope you're happy. So what you're saying is that our listeners are brainless, easily influenced sheep. <laughs> and that with just a few words, they're a, they, they go off in one direction. Good luck winning another poll. Because that's going <laughs> to register. That's going to register in their minds. They're going to know that that's what you think of them. And so and not luck. all of good them, so only 72, per, only 72 percent of them, 28 percent of them are not sheep, Kieran. I well, stand with the 28 percent. I think that 28 percent, I think it would have been a whitewash. But there's the 28 percent that felt sorry for you because <laughs> of the way that I post. Because they, they looked at it and they're like, you know what? That's a little unfair. We're going to prove that we because I have faith in our listeners, Eric, and mm -hmm. their ability to, to, to sort of, you know, see through all the crap we talk and, and write and all of that. I know that they're smart. I have faith in them. That's why <laughs> I put up that poll. That's why, and, and that's why they're going to vote for me in future. But there mm -hmm. were some who said, you know what, Kieran? You've gone too far. You've gone too far. We're going with Eric. <laughs> that's what happened. So, so I go. just I got You're a few I got a few pity votes 
and the rest. But but in fact, everyone believed your card was better. Interesting theory. To I choose not to think that our listeners are soft brain, but rather that you are a very powerful Svengali type influence, and who can resist? Uh, well, I, well, yeah. Well, I can't disagree with that. Obviously, I mean, right. That's, that's, you know, fight on the button. All right. Well, I guess we're never going to settle this, and uh, and everyone everyone can just decide what they think the truth is. But uh, the fact is, you know, there's an asterisk next to it, Kieran. Yeah, is there though? Yes, yes, there is. <laughs> yes, because I just put it there, a magic marker. <laughs> but that's all it takes. If one person applies an asterisk, <laughs> yeah, there's the asterisk. That's right. There you go. Exactly. All right. All right. Uh, let, let's turn our attention to a couple of things to look forward to in the weeks ahead here on the ICBP. Um, this Sunday night, uh, a few hours after this podcast is posting, HBO is airing the first episode of the fourth season of True Detective. And uh, that is relevant here on the ICBP because the co-star, you know, alongside the lead, Jodie Foster, the co-star is Kaylee Reese, the Native American actor and pro boxer. Kieran, you're a big fan of seasons one and three of True Detective, and you even watched all of season two, which is an achievement of sorts. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was a big fan of seven eighths of the first season. Very much disliked the finale. Uh, I abandoned season two just a few episodes in. I heard from a few people, including you, that season three was very good, but I never did watch it. But I'm back on board. Season four is getting strong reviews and there's the Kaylee Reese factor. So we'll both be watching and we'll talk about the episodes on the pod on a semi-regular basis. We'll discuss episode one whenever we record next. Then we'll have to skip a couple of weeks while you're in England and uh, and double stack some episodes to catch up. But uh, anyway, that's something to look forward to starting next week. Any uh, any thoughts on your mind uh, before we've seen the first episode here of True Detective? Just uh, to said it is something I'm very much looking forward to, actually. Um, it has had really good um, sort of buzz for a little while. Um, yeah. Anything with, with Jodie Foster in it is is generally pretty good. Uh, I I cannot believe I sat through season. I actually got angry with myself by the end <laughs> of sitting through season. I, I think we've had this discussion before about how sometimes I'll sort of feel compelled, especially if it's a short run. Right. show to like push through to the end having started but then that's not the excuse for for watching every single season of homeland is it really i mean i stuck, <laughs> stuck with that for several seasons yeah i just i just do it but season three i thought was a fantastic uh, uh comeback and um yeah i'm really keen a really interesting piece of casting i'm i'm really looking forward to it and i get your point very much about the final episode of of the first season I thought those first, and I remember us talking about it at the time, I thought those first seven episodes were as good TV as I'd ever seen. I, th I thought it was absolutely remarkable. And then that last episode was an odd kind of fall off. But um, but yeah, season three, I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed, not least because of Mahershala Ali and his tremendous mm -hmm. acting. But uh, yeah, uh, we'll see. And so, yeah, so we're going to comment on it and uh, give people our, our takes. Um We'll have to do episodes two and three a bit later because I'm going to be in England and right. Max doesn't work in in Euroland. But um, but yeah, 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 yeah. Looking a little a little and, extra something something for y'all. And this fourth season is set in Alaska, so it, it like it couldn't there be any more up your alley. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. So right. yeah, well, so that's cool. something to look forward to. But that's yep. just one of the things to look forward to, I believe, Eric. Indeed, uh, another thing. Starting with the the next podcast, uh, I believe uh, we will begin. A betting competition. Uh, what are the rules and parameters? Um, well, we haven't decided or even discussed it yet, but but I have some ideas. So, Kieran, I'll tell you what I'm thinking. 
You tell me what you like or don't. We'll hash it out here live on the pod till we have our rules in place. Um, first off, I'm thinking we each start with a $500 bankroll. Again, pretend money. doesn't have to be a real $500. But we start with $500. The winner is whoever has won more or lost less uh, at the end of the year. Whoever's bankroll is higher. The bankroll is purely to be used on boxing. You can't go sneaking in any bets on Liverpool Football Club. Um, and because sports betting just launched this week in Vermont, and there are three sports books there, the, uh, and all three are also in my state, Pennsylvania, I figure we can make it reality-based in that these will all be bets we could each actually place in real life. So only those three sports books' odds are in play. It's FanDuel, DraftKings, and fanatics in vermont points bet which will eventually become fanatics uh, in pennsylvania um so it, it gives with three sports books we have the ability to shop around for odds a bit but we don't have to get bogged down checking 20 sites you know just three options so um more more details uh that I'll, that i'll reveal next but uh, but good so far with the, that basic outline of it yep I, li- I like that idea i like that okay. idea a lot yeah okay so here are some of the further details um I'm thinking no maximum bet size. Like if you want to bet your whole bankroll, you can, although it would be silly to do that early in the year, but you know, it keeps things interesting right up until the end. If you can go all in trying to double your bankroll or more than double it, if it's like a long shot bet, whatever, but for a minimum bet size, I think we do need to establish that and, and a minimum number of bets placed. Like, so I'm thinking, Minimum bet size of $10, nothing under $10, unless you're down to your last $8.50, of course, you know, whatever. But you must bet at least $10 at a time. And I'm thinking you must make at least three bets per month, Um, (laughs) assuming no pandemics that prevent there from being any boxing. Um, but But I figure maybe for January since it's already mid month and, you know, we'll make it maybe just a, a, a one bet minimum for January um, since we're starting late. But after that, three bet, three minimum bets per month, $10 each at least. Um, so like if one of us has a big lead, this allows you to be conservative, but not so conservative mm. that you are just sitting on your lead, not betting at all. A um, gotcha. little bit more, but uh, any anything in there that any of the amount you know is 10 seem like a good minimum should it be five i don't know any any thoughts on yeah, any of that I mean, especially as it's uh funny money so right. yeah no i uh yeah that all seems perfectly fine i'm gonna put 500 dollars on natasha jonas and um <laughs> right and then the competition <laughs> we'll is potentially <laughs> over uh but uh yeah um okay so uh, the, the last thing that i had in mind here is you know when we make our when we would make our, our our picks in our picks competition, it would just sort of rotate who's first and who's second. And with this, I think I think it's important that there be no advantage to betting before or after the other person, mm. um, especially at the end of the year when, you know, let's say I'm trailing and I hear your bet. And so I put my whole bankroll on the other guy, that sort of thing. We'll have to use the honor system a bit, but I think the policy should be that all bets are committed to in writing in your in your podcast notes before we record so oh that's a good idea right so so you know let's if, if i want to put 50 bucks on fury over Usyk at minus 200 or whatever i jot that down before we start recording and then if you reveal you're putting a hundred dollars on fury i can't decide oh well then i'm doing a hundred dollars also i've committed okay. 
to 50 bucks. But so so that's what I've got. So I, I just figure every week we'll have like a quick segment where we say, all right, does either of us want to play a bet this week? And uh, we both have the opportunity to announce any bets that we've jotted down or some weeks there will be none. But I, it's also something I, we can carry over to any theoretical new homes for this podcast that we may have uh, mid-year. So I don't know. Any Anything to add? Any ideas for twists? Or uh, does that all sound good to you? Yeah, the only thing I could think of for a twist, just to make it fun, is to ensure that at least one of the three bets is a prop bet of some kind, right? So you were not just that's doing not bad. Straight up, I'm picking, I'm picking this guy to win. We should make an effort to find. Uh, I'm going to put money on each guy gets knocked down in the first round, kind of a thing, or some something to that. Just, just to spark it up, we've got to have one prop bet. How does that sound? Yeah, I like that. And uh, you know, a prop really can be anything. It can be method of victory. It can be just like picking someone mm. by KO rather than just picking them. I think, yeah, anything. That's 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 good. I like that. Three minimum three bets per per month, but at least one of them has to be something other than just picking one fighter or the other yeah. to win. Yeah. I like and that. It that's can a good be three. Twist. Like you can do all all prop bets if that's what you want. Right. But but at least yeah. one of them has to be. Yeah. 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 And it's I like that. To be fine though. That way, that that we're going to have more movement probably that way. Right. So, um, okay. All right. We have our competition, uh, Kieran, uh, I will be pretend shipping you $500 to start with, and then, uh, we'll go from there. <laughs> yes. I shall pretend to eat a lot of pizzas and find that I no longer have $500 <laughs> to bet with, but there you go. <laughs> uh, at close this week's episode, it is time to hear from you, the listeners. Uh, we had some great responses to our first request for questions and comments to the interim pod to open things up, Eric. Here's one from Michael Parada, who asks, how did you guys meet and become friends? And how did you decide to do a boxing podcast together? I love your show. I listen to lots of boxing podcasts. And yours is easily my favorite. Thanks. Now, friends is a little strong, but okay. Well, I'll, I'll roll. <laughs> that was going to be my, my note. <laughs> um, so I can't recall if we've ever been asked this and told the story on the pod. Not, not that it's much of a story, but uh, if we have told it, it's uh, it's probably been a while. So we first met at Jones Trinidad at the Garden, our uh, shared editor at ESPN, Darius Ortiz, suggested we meet since we were both going to be there. So I, I was stuck up in the, uh, in the auxiliary and the uh, security at the Garden hassled me to no end as I tried to get down near the corral, but I did eventually get <laughs> down there and, and we chatted for a bit. But then the first time we did anything together work-wise was in HBO pay-per-view week in Vegas. It was either Mayweather Victor Ortiz or Pacquiao Marquez three. I forget which, but those were the two I attended that year. We were both freelancing for HBO. I think Steve Marzolf was our editor at the time. Is that mm, right? I think so. Yeah. Yes. Um, and he suggested we do a co-bylined article where we just sent Skype messages back and forth talking about the fight, discussing, debating, whatever. And then we published the exchange as an article. So we did that a few times and there was a, a, a fun banter to it, a bit of chemistry. And uh, and so when ESPN ended your podcast, because, well, they found out you had a podcast, uh, we turned to uh, Michael Gluckstadt, <laughs> who by this time was our editor at HBO and suggested we do a podcast together. And 10 years and two murdered boxing programs later, here we yep. are. Yep. yep. It's so funny with that first, first um, podcast meeting with Gluck, because I was in the office anyway. Uh, mm -hmm. talking about some and as as you're well aware sometimes i'm a bit oblivious to things and um we go and we sat down we sat down in this conference room and he, and gluck goes all right let's call in eric and i go oh yeah let's call in eric that sounds like a nice idea and 
<laughs> then before I know it, we're having this podcast conversation. And I remember writing to you afterwards going and about me being involved in your podcast, because I know you've been trying to get luck to do the podcast for a while. Mm-hmm. And I just remember going, oh, I really hope I didn't like muscle in on your whole podcast thing there. I hope that wasn't, you know, that you weren't planning on doing it with Bill Detloff and I've just completely stolen it. And well, <laughs> which was which was my initial concern. But uh, ah, yeah, well, but there we go. I think um, to, first off, the conversations actually went back as far as Chris Vivian when he was the editor there. Oh, so like okay. two two editors before Gluck was when at that point it was me and Detloff that like I reached out with the idea of the two of us doing an HBO podcast together. By the time the real thing rolled around several years later, A, I was just excited to do it regardless of you know whether Bill was coming along or not. But it, in B, I'm not sure a Raskin Detloff podcast would have been a great fit for the more corporate world yeah. of HBO. I think, yeah. I think you were the right partner for this venture. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, talking of non-corporate uh, types, uh, we have a follow-up of sorts from Nate Salim, who I'm not saying is a non-corporate type. Um, <laughs> I think he writes, saying. <laughs> I, I was a huge fan of the mysterious and fictional Jim Bag, who wrote articles for Ring and KO Magazine in the late 90s. Uh, an old school no nonsense, witty dude. I'm not sure it was that witty, actually. <laughs> who constantly spoke of himself in the third person, similar to Roy Jones Jr. at the time. I was shocked a year or two ago when Eric revealed that he was the secret pen behind the self-professed legend. Could Eric please retell the story of Jim Bag and Kieran comment whether he knew of Jim Bag, and if so, his thoughts. Thanks to both of you for the best boxing podcast. So to be clear, I was not the original Jim Bag. I was not the only Jim Bag. Um, I will not. I will not Shamu. say. Oh, that's. Uh, it took me a second to figure out who the hell Shamu was, but okay. So any what one whale dies, they just take another whale yeah. and call them Shamu. Okay, yeah. interesting. Wow, you're blowing the lid off this thing, Kieran. <laughs> so I will not say who else was ever Jim Bag because I don't want to out anyone. That's that's their truth to share when they're ready. But um, the Jim Bag column existed before I came to Ring Magazine. And um, before long, I took it over and I did remain Jim Bag until the end of Jim Bag. So from like 1998 to, I guess, 2011 was his final column. It was basically satire. It it was a spoof of a crusty old asshole with a boxing column. Um, (laughs) But I had a lot of fun doing it. And I can only remember two people who ever identified that I was Jim Bag without having been told I was Jim Bag, And if I'm repeating what I said when we first revealed on some podcast a few years ago that I was Jim Bag, uh, apologies. But um, one of those people is Steve Farhood. Um, after <laughs> after Bag wrote the iconic line about Steve looking like he combed his hair with a piece of toast, uh, Steve reached <laughs> out to me and said, you're Jim Bag, right? And, and then he said he loved the line, so all good. Um, and the other person who figured it out, um, Bag had been critical of a Max Kellerman post-fight interview on HBO that went awry. And Jim Lampley called me and he said, I saw what Jim Bag wrote and I'd like to defend Max. He had a producer in his ear. It was a hectic situation, yada, yada. And I just wanted to let you know the full story so you can let Jim Bag know the next time you talk to him. <laughs> That's amazing. Now, now maybe someone tipped Lamps off, but I, I prefer to think that Lamps is just smart enough and astute enough and read me long enough and Bag long enough to figure it out. Wow. Wow. That's that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I believe that with Jim, actually. I completely believe that. Um, so and I know you've you've talked about this, I think, perhaps in the same pod where you did the full public reveal. But <laughs> right. um 
one of the what I remember, and I used to read Jim Bag, was the number of different ways in which you found to refer for Jim to refer to himself in the third person. And I seem to remember you telling me that that was that like a lot of work or you were constantly having to come up. I, I can't remember, but I remember yeah. you, you commenting on something like that, that you would have to just work to come up with you know, the old bag mice, the old bagarama, bagarlanga, ding dong. It was just <laughs> one after the other, after the other. And it was quite a lot of work, wasn't it? Yeah. That part became a real chore after a while, but basically I, my mindset was I would repeat them. There were certain ones, you know, Bagarama, Bagmeister, Bagster, etc. I could repeat ones I'd used before. My goal was just to make sure in each in each column I had one new one I had never used before was kind of what I would, and then otherwise I would just cycle through ones I that I had used before. But yeah, that that part did uh, did did become the, sort of the the least fun part of writing the column after a while. But yeah, the Jim Bag had uh, almost as many nicknames as uh, as Alfie the Cat. <laughs> almost, and I, and I can't remember if I ever asked you this. Was it like liberating writing under a, a pseudonym, thinking that basically nobody knew? Were you meaner because you were oh, de- back? Definitely. <laughs> de- de- yeah, you know, I guess it's it's a little similar to when uh, when Ring Theory went behind the paywall, and Bill and mm. I just like were ready to rip into whoever the hell we felt like ripping into, knowing that they would not have easy access to it. This was uh, a little bit similar. It was it was liberating in that I could. I could write takes that weren't actually my own takes if I wanted to. Mm. Um, mm. And yeah, I could, I could throw in a, a snide comment uh, at someone's expense without my name being attached to it. That was, that was kind of one of the advantages of doing it. Ah, <laughs> uh, Good times. Yes. Uh, all right. Here's a, a mailbag question from our intern, Owen Lewis, who asks, what were the best and worst moments in your career covering boxing? And he, him putting it in the past tense kind of sounds like our career is covering boxing or right. over, but he may not be wrong. Uh, but uh, so what do you say, Kieran? Best and worst moments? Wow. I don't know that I have many worst moments. I'm sure there are moments that at the time seemed awful, um, but I haven't really stuck with with time as being particularly awful right um maybe a couple i mean we talked <laughs> trying to trying to get andy ruiz on the on the podcast oh, might have been one yeah. of them. we talked about that that wasn't great right um getting paul's metaphor on one might have been might have been one um, challenging certainly a challenging, challenging. moment yeah but i don't think it's, i mean even bernard hopkins force feeding me a beat um wasn't <laughs> wasn't that bad it was it was a bit awkward at the time but yeah i struggle to think of too much in the way of worsts i mean there's been times where we said stuff that we didn't mean to say or that got misinterpreted and right that had to go back and be excited but that happens you say enough words or you write enough words then that happens yeah i struggle with the worst the 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 best i guess were there was a period with hbo where i was going all over the place, all over the world to, to, to do interviews for them. And it's got to be some combination of, you know, interviewing Gennady Golovkin in Monte Carlo and being at Wembley for Joshua Klitschko and being in Russia. That actually maybe being in Russia. And I don't know if um, for Sergei Kovalev fight against Isaac Chalemba when I right. was, did the in-ring interviews um, on the broadcast and just, yeah, just generally being being there and being in Russia and being tremendously jet lagged and 
and somehow making it through those those three days just to do a, a quick interview that uh, really wasn't a particularly great interview because Sergey wouldn't shut up. So I only got to ask one question. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I, I would say something like, I don't know, Owen, if that really, if you were looking for something a bit more specific and particularly momentary, but yeah, something like that. I think the best moments, plural, were when I was getting to do a lot of that traveling uh, and, and see boxing around the world. And yeah, I really do struggle for worsts, honestly. Okay. Yeah. I mean, getting to be, yeah, part of the HBO broadcast team is, should be a career highlight uh, for, for, for anyone who gets that opportunity. That's, that is pretty cool. I mean, so I was a little uncertain of how to interpret exactly what Owen is asking here. Like there's best and worst boxing moments that I happen Mm. to cover or, and then there's best and worst moments for me. So, uh, I mean, the first one is certainly easier and I'm not sure if this is what he was asking, but, you know, best moment would be the best fight I ever covered being there at Gaddy Ward right. one and and the worst moment in boxing that I covered. I'm not sure if you know that I was at this fight because I don't think it's ever come up on a podcast, at least. But I was at the fight where James Butler punched Richard Grant after the fight with I his gloves. I did off. not know that. Yeah. No. So, but you're certainly familiar with the incident. Um, Absolutely. For, any, for anyone who isn't, Butler lost an upset decision and with his gloves off afterward, just in hand wraps, walked across the ring and cold cocked Grant and was arrested on the spot and just a shocking and disturbing thing to witness. And then he went on to do far worse. Yeah. We don't need to drag the podcast down talking about it. But um, th- those are maybe some best and worst things, things in boxing that I've covered, but, but, um, interpreting the question more as you did the best and worst moments for me, I guess, you know, best it's like things are relative and, and, and they change. So, um, this one feels like nothing to me now, but at the time, the first time that Max Kellerman quoted me on Friday night fights, it was out of the blue. He quoted one of my articles and said my name on live TV. And I was like 23 years old at the time. And I'd never heard my name spoken on TV before. So relatively at the time, that felt massive to me. And the other one for a best that comes to mind, um, after I got fired from Max Boxing, uh, the phone call where I uh, replaced my Max Boxing column with a column for freaking ESPN.com back when that really meant something <laughs> that, that call where uh, this is again, Darius Ortiz, who I mentioned earlier, I'm on the phone with him. And he basically said, we want to bring you in for a weekly column and here's the amount we'll pay, which was 50% higher than the max boxing gig <laughs> that I'd gotten fired from. I hung up the phone and I actually pumped my fist. I'm not sure anything <laughs> in my career besides that has ever made me pump my fist. Um, worst moment in my career like you i'm sort of like sitting here thinking i must have done or said or written something embarrassing at some point that i that i'm sure i've sort of blocked out some of it um i did get reamed out in the press room at our first showtime fight week in 2019 by someone Mm -hmm. who did not appreciate Mm -hmm. my twitter snark um i i I will tell that story someday but the time is not yet right we never know if this person and i may may have our paths crossing again so i I think i'll keep that one quiet for now but you know who and what i'm talking about kieran uh certainly that was not a great moment in my career i mean you know hbo and then showtime exiting boxing leaving us at least temporarily uncertain of the future those are bad um 
getting fired from the ring as a freelancer in combination with Nigel getting fired and the the editorial reins getting handed over to someone who couldn't hold Nigel's jockstrap. Uh, that was bad. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting some low moments. I must be, but, but those are some of the ones that are coming to mind here. Yeah. Well, that's, that's kind of something we've been around for a while and we can't think of the particular bad ones. I suspect that's more because we blocked it out. I, I think so. <laughs> there must, there must like the, the one that I, uh, in getting, getting, uh, reamed out in the press room, um, I didn't, it took me a while to remember that one, like mm, as I was thinking right. about this a bit. Um, so uh, yeah, there must be something else uh, in the deep, dark recesses of my mind that uh, was awful that I'm uh, not remembering at all. That might've been the same day that Caleb Plant glowered at you. <laughs> it was certainly the same fight week. So yeah, yeah. Oof, wow. Off to a grand start, you were. <laughs> all up till from there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay. Dan at the back asks, would you guys be willing to interview a regional promoter, someone without a TV deal, but still making a go of things? I'd love to hear about a week in the life of one of them. What do they do without Showbox or prospect cards? Do they need day jobs to supplement their income? Do they make most of their money through developing prospects and selling their rights to the bigger promoters? That's that's a good idea. Um, doesn't require much of a response other than to say, yes, I, you know, I, I think those are all interesting questions. The closest we've come, I guess, is interviewing Christy Martin at the Hall of Fame. We, we asked her a question or two about promoting these small shows, I think. But yeah, you, you don't hear about the regional promoters in any national media, um, but it's certainly an interesting topic. I have nothing else to say except, you know, good idea, Dan. I'm, I'm, I'm up for pursuing such an interview. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a, I think it's a terrific idea. Um, and, and probably now while we're doing things like this is probably the, the best time uh, mm -hmm. to do that because, yeah. It, I think you raise a really interesting point there because, you know, by the time we get to know a lot of fighters, they tend to have maybe, maybe some of them will have stuck with their small promoters, but other ones have signed their deal with with top rank or or matchroom or whoever, and they're, they're getting some some TV interest. But it takes a lot. It's the small shows, it's the small local shows, the small promoters, the club shows that that really make a difference. I, I think I might have talked before about how when I was living in Las Vegas for a while. Um, guilty boxing would have I think it was twice a month shows on Thursday night at the Orleans and they were shows that everybody would turn out to everybody in the Las Vegas fight community would, would show up for these these fights and they were Brad Goodman was the matchmaker who put them together um, they were always good fights they were entertaining fights and they were the places where some pretty decent fighters started Yushe Smith Alfonso Gomez um, guys like that guys who you know didn't become a plus stars but have pretty decent careers um and yeah and to, to be at a, at a small regional show or at a club show can be really really fun and really entertaining uh i love the idea i would love the idea of us doing a show from a club show actually that'd mm. be that'd be great um so yeah so don't get your hopes up but we might yeah no it's a good idea um all right couple more here uh drew asks which is more impressive to you guys, a fighter cleaning out and dominating a single division during their career, e.g. Hagler, or fighter who navigates and wins titles across many divisions, e.g. Pacquiao? I think it depends who it is and how they do it. Are they staying at one weight class while determinedly ignoring potential challenges a couple of pounds away? Um, are they moving through weight classes because they don't have the discipline to keep making weight uh there are pluses to both i really like the fact that golovkin gennady golovkin and marvin hagler uh were middleweights remained middleweights 
and dared all comers to try and unseat them. I, I really like that. But equally, that run of Pacquiao, when he started at like 126 and then tore through 130, 135, 140, 147, that was astonishing. Mm. And that was exciting to be a part of, to be around. Um, that would have to be actually... Uh, to get back to Owen's question, probably one of the, the the highlights, the good points of my boxing career was basically tracking that entire career of Manny Pacquiao. Um, you know, that said, inevitably, as boxers age, they're more likely to struggle to to make weight they made early in the career. Um, so I do, and I think probably it's funny, like I think my attitude on this might have changed ever so slightly as I have gotten older and found how much easier it is to add weight and harder it is to lose it. <laughs> I have grown to have a particular fondness and admiration for guys like Golovkin, like Hagler, like Behal, mm-hmm. who until late in life, I think Bernard was in his 40s before he moved up to light heavyweight. He'd been a middleweight all, all the time up until then. Right. Those kind of people who are able to remain in peak condition at their ideal weight for so long, I personally have an immense admiration for them. Yeah, what is it about middleweight champions that, uh, that yeah. causes them to stick there? I don't know, but um, yeah, this is a great question and just a really interesting thing to think about. It you know, no wrong answers here, but yeah, I have to say, moving up across four or five, or in the case of Pacquiao, eight divisions, I would say that's more impressive as a physical and athletic accomplishment. But the the word you used, uh, admirable, admiration. There's just something incredibly admirable about what Hagler did. It's largely a question of New school versus old school. Um, I mm. mean, Hagler was the definition of old school. He was he was just so old school through and through. But yeah, I'd I'd say dominating one division more admirable, but more dazzling was would be yeah. you know winning titles from 120, 112 all the way up to one hundred fifty four or, or what Inoue is in the process of doing one hundred eight, one twelve, one fifteen, one eighteen, one twenty two, and not close to done yet. I mean, how can you not be impressed by that? Yeah, indeed. Um, finally, I love this question, but I'm not sure I have a great answer for it. Uh, it's from um, Zot Zot Zot, who, <laughs> <laughs> who asks, a different category for year-end awards. What's the weirdest boxing story or event of 2023? You know, that Zot Zot Zot, that's, that's more possible cat names for you to consider there. Zot and Zot Zot. <laughs> I think I think that won't be confusing at all. Just, so you know, if if you you know if there's still wiggle room, just you right. know, consider it. Or, okay. or or that could be how I call them to dinner. Sot, 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 sot. <laughs> yeah, why not? Why 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 not just speak basically in gibberish? We're we're at that point. Um, I mean, we get paid to do it, so we might as well right. extend it to my yeah. hat. So, yes. <laughs> so, okay. So, Zatzatzat's question, the uh, weirdest boxing story or event. Yeah, it's a fun category idea. Um, you know, there are a few categories that some people do that, that we didn't, like prospect of the year, comeback fighter of the year, event of the year. Um, weirdest story or event of the year. Hmm. I mean, boxing does not lack usually for weird stories. Um struggling to think of something off the top of my head i first thing that comes to mind tyson fury getting knocked down by a fighter making his pro Mm -hmm. boxing debut and barely holding on to win i guess that was pretty damn weird um boy we have an early contender in 2024 with the tony week stuff um yeah we do i was thinking that actually (laughs) just now yeah Yeah. but what what am i not thinking of from 2023 um Mayweather against John Gotti the third was last year, I think. Oh, God, uh, yeah. Maybe that. I don't know. Can you think of anything I'm not thinking of? No, and I'm 
And I feel like it's one of those things where we're going to sit here for a couple of minutes going, go and think of anything. And our listeners are going to be, mm. hey, what about that entire pod you devoted to such and such in June? <laughs> right, right. Right. And it's boxing. Maybe we've just become so inured with everything in boxing just being ridiculous that <laughs> nothing stands out anymore. <laughs> I feel like be. this is a really good question and it needs to be a category for future year end awards, I think, sure. definitively. But why can't I think of something? There must have been something. Uh, people, this is your chance. Send yes. in your suggestions because yes. clearly we're missing something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. I, and we're going to be really embarrassed when you come up with it, but uh, come up with some of your suggestions. But this feels like a, a very good question for which we should have very good answers. And uh, we have failed you again. <laughs> <laughs> but I, th I feel like the, the ICBP, more than any other podcast iterations we've done, we are embracing the idea of leaning on our listeners to help us out and yes. do the work for us. So they can step up with this. And, and you know, I should say just before we close the mailbag here that, that we got a lot of excellent mailbag questions and comments we didn't even get to. So, you know, apologies if you sent in something and we didn't read it that doesn't mean we didn't like it. We we really had more good submissions than we could handle, both in the comments and via email. Oh, so by a mile, yeah, yeah. So uh, I I I don't think this will be the last mailbag we do on the ICBP. No, indeed not, indeed not. Uh, thank you again for listening. We'll be dropping another podcast from the vaults very soon this week on Monday, in fact, and uh, we will be back again next weekend. So I've been planning to post soliciting input on good sign-offs, but. We got sent one by Zach Stecklin that I, I kind of like, and, and I'm, I'm going to go with it until, uh, until you folks tell me not to. So <clears throat> perhaps someday we'll be elevated. But until then, we are merely the interim champion boxing podcast. <laughs> <laughs>